It is a joy to open the Word of God with the people of God this morning. On April 15th, 1912, the greatest ship of its time, carrying over 2,000 people, called the Titanic, hit an iceberg and slowly began to sink. And when the Titanic hit the iceberg, a a name by the name of John Harper, who was a widower, a father, and a pastor, helped his daughter onto a lifeboat, turned, and forsaking his own rescue, began to passionately proclaim women, children, and the unsaved get into the lifeboats. As he helped people onto the boats and was pleading with them to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. There was a one testimony of a man who was quite angry with him, using his time and energy to proclaim the gospel as the Titanic is sinking. But Harper handed him a life vest and said, you need this more than I, for I know where I'm going today. See, at the heart, John Harper died so that others might live. He forsook his own rescue so that others might be rescued, both physically and spiritually. He laid his life down in service of those around him. Isn't that powerful? What a powerful picture. It's extraordinary. But I want us to grasp this morning that extraordinary things are done by ordinary people like you and like me, like serving others. I want us to grasp that extraordinary things, extraordinary service specifically, is done by ordinary people. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. So what does this extraordinarily ordinary service look like in the life of the church? Who models it in the church? Well, please open your Bible to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Acts chapter 6. Acts comes after the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to be living in these verses 1 through 7 today, so you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage. Please listen and follow along as I read. This is the good word of God, and this is the best part of the sermon right here. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up teaching 
preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask that you would turn the lights on now in our our dim hearts and minds, that you'd make us attentive to your word after everything that we've been through this week, both individually and corporately. Lord, we ask that we would not just be informed by your word, but that we would be transformed by it. Cause us to behold the risen Christ this morning. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray. Amen. Well, I titled this sermon, What is a Deacon? And we'll be spending the rest of this morning answering that very question from Acts 6, 1 through 7. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's kind of the main idea and outline for our time together. Here it is. What is a deacon? A deacon is a spirit-filled model servant that serves the church, that is selected by the church, and lastly, is set apart for the unity of the church. Okay. Point one, a deacon is a spirit-filled model servant that serves the church. Look with me at verses one through two once again. Now in those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Well, this verse comes right on the heels of chapter 5, verse 42, which reads... And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The name of Christ is at this point spreading like wildfire throughout the region. And like a rock thrown into a body of water, the gospel is having a ripple upon ripple upon ripple effect in that region as God's grace upon grace upon grace is going out to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. And the New Testament churches gathering in the temple 
and from house to house in those days. And as we read in verse 1 of our text this morning, they're flourishing. But with growth comes conflict. And we read in verse 1 that a complaint arises within the church between two parties, the Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews, the Hebraic Jews. And the complaint is over the care of widows as they were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what was the daily distribution? Well, it was the daily ministry, daily service of financial and material charity to those who were in need. It was a ministry that first started in the synagogue and then had worked its way to the New Testament Christian church. And it existed because of passages like, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 22:22, which states, you shall not mistreat any widow. Or Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so, rightfully... A complaint and a conflict arises when the least of these in the congregation, the widows, aren't being taken care of well. And here we see in our passage the members of the church taking responsibility for the members of the church. And so the 12, the leaders and pastors of the early church, that are overseeing this whole scenario, summon the full number of the disciples. Another translation says that they summoned the whole congregation. And this is key. Who was a member of the congregation? Well, one who had repented and believed in Christ alone for salvation and was baptized and had joined the church there, who had committed themselves to both Christ vertically and to one another horizontally. For friends, a commitment to Christ always comes with a commitment to his body, a local church, a congregation, as we see here in our text. Well, after the apostles had summoned together the church that was in conflict, they said this, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. See, the apostles were set apart to teach and to preach the word and to oversee the daily distribution of needs, not manage it. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. This text is not saying that the apostles were above serving tables. Nor is the text saying that they are, that serving in table ministry is somehow subservient 
to serving tables. No, they were simply acknowledging that there needs to be a sharing of service in the life of the church. There should be a sharing of that service, a sharing in order to meet not only the spiritual needs of the church, but also the practical. And this is where deacons step in. Now, where in the world does the word deacon come from? So let's, let's hop on the Greek train just for a moment, just for a moment. See, the word for distribution or service there in verse 1, diakonia, is in the same Greek family of words as the word for serve farther down in, in uh, verse 2, diakonio. The word deacon is rooted in this family of words. A deacon, simply and broadly put, is one who serves the church. And in a broad sense, every Christian is a deacon, broadly. Every deacon, every Christian serves, for every Christian is called to serve. Every Christian is a servant of Christ, a servant that follows the pattern of servanthood that we see in Scripture, more specifically in the life of the chief servant, Jesus. This is what we, we heard earlier in that reading of John 13, the text that Pastor Jeff read. In that passage, we saw Jesus, the maker and sustainer of all things, serving his disciples. He, does this, he did this by setting aside his garment, humbly kneeling, and washing their feet. And friends, this is ultimately what Christ did on the cross, isn't it? He set aside his splendor. He humbly went to the cross to die for the sins of his people, his church, in order that they would be washed in his blood. Salvation itself is grounded in Christ's servant work on the cross. For Jesus came not to be served, but to serve by laying his life down. A different translation of that could read, Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon by laying his life down. Oh, if there are any here. Oh, if there are any here who do not know this Christ, this Christ who was supernaturally born of a virgin, this Christ who was sinless and perfect in every way, faithful to God's word, this Jesus who took the wrath of God against sin, against your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross. This Jesus who declared, it is finished, as we sang earlier. And because of that, we can sing, it is well. This Jesus who became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This Jesus who three days later, after being declared dead and buried, 
arose from the grave, guaranteeing, friends, guaranteeing life and salvation to all of those who repent and turn to him in faith. Hallelujah, what a savior. Oh, friend, if you do not know this Christ, if you do not know him, if you want to know more, I'll be standing at that door after the service. There is nothing more that I would rather talk to you about than Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Nothing more. That is our desire for you to know that this morning. But if you are a Christian, this pattern of servanthood ought to mark your life as well. Our family has been here for two months now. And we've seen service and hospitality lived out. We've experienced the warmth of this congregation as we have come and have arrived and have begun to become knit into the body here. You have warmly opened up your homes and you have warmly opened up your lives to us. And we are thankful. We're thankful for that. And as, as your pastor, I desire to see that culture of hospitality grow in the life of the church. I desire to see a, a broader understanding of hospitality happen in this church. Because here's the thing, radical hospitality isn't an event. It's not an event. It's a way of life. It's a posture. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I think we're going to give a free copy of this away at the members meeting next week. Hint, hint. Um, Radically, she says this, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home and life, I would add, in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. So what does this look like in the life of this church? What does it look like for us to deacon one another and serve one another? Well, it looks like being willing to give of ourselves in serving in any capacity in the church. Similarly to what we've seen in this text. It looks like being on the lookout for new faces in the church, being hospitable toward the stranger who comes in through those doors or these doors. It looks like continuing to opening, open up our homes to one another and our lives with one another to both uh, ourselves but also to our neighborhoods, not just to those who we like or are comfortable with. May we be a, con- a congregation that is marked, that is marked by palpable, Christ-exalting love, hospitality, and service. May we, may we be willing as a church to serve just as we have been so greatly served by Christ. Well, looking back at Act 6, we see that the congregation notices an issue, takes responsibility for that issue. And so they went to the apostles, they went to their pastors, 
in search of a solution. And that brings us to point two. A deacon is a spirit-filled model servant that is selected by the church. Let's look at that in verses three through five together. Read with me. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. What is the solution to the complaint of verse 1? The church is the solution to the complaint. Beloved, here is a portrait of this truth. It takes the whole church to do the work of the church. It takes the whole church to do this. And here is a direct application for us. If you have a complaint, like we've seen in in the text today, if you have a complaint, then you must be ready to be a part of the solution. That's the way it works. For the apostles, in verse 3, tell the church, choose seven men from among yourselves. The elders are not hand-selecting the deacons. The deacons aren't selecting the deacons. Members of the church aren't self-declaring themselves to be deacons. No, deacons are chosen. Deacons are recognized and selected from among the congregation, which assumes that the whole congregation is present and is doing the work of ongoing service. And these men were simply recognized among the whole for their service. Well, pressing further on into verse 3, how are deacons selected? According to their character. These men were to be chosen first because of their good repute. They were honest men. Second, they were full of the Spirit. Another way to think about this is that they were full of, not full of it, they were full of all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Third, They were wise. These these were discerning men. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul tells young Pastor Timothy what deacons ought to be. He says they ought to be dignified. This is 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and are also great confidence in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. We ought to notice both in 1 Timothy 3 and our passage here in Acts 6 that there's very little mention about the particular gifting or the specific job of a deacon. They are first to be recognized by their godliness. They are present and faithful members who are selected to be model workers, which is why every person in the church ought to be pursuing these godly character traits. Godly deacons are not about, if we take a sum of everything that we just read, godly deacons are not about setting up a little kingdom territory in the church. Rather, they are about unifying the kingdom as a whole. We're going to see this more clearly in just a few verses. Deacons are team-oriented and church-oriented men and women. And so, beloved church, ultimately, here's the point for us. Deacons aren't selected on the grounds of their competency. They're selected on the grounds of their character. Deacons are spirit-filled model servants that the church sees and recognizes because of their character and their Christ-likeness, and they are worthy to be modeled and imitated. Now, if we were just to to build our understanding of, of who a deacon is from Acts chapter 6, and 1 Timothy 3, we would have to resolve to this being only men, only an office that a man can hold. But I want us to see in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 2, there's a woman by the name of Phoebe who is called a deaconess. She is set apart, selected, and pointed out by Paul as a woman of virtue and of service. The deacon role can be filled by both men and women. And so, brothers and sisters, be on the lookout for men and women in this congregation who you see serving and bearing the marks of godly character so that we may recognize and call more deacons in the life of this church. Not only so that the whole church may thrive, but also specifically so that elders can as well. Look with me at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, deacons facilitate the ministry of word and prayer. This is why deacons and elders need one another. When deacons thrive, elders thrive. And when deacons and elders thrive, the church thrives. This is important. It's been said that deacons are like shock absorbers that serve and absorb the shock as ministry of word and prayer moves forward with the Lord's help and by his grace. Again, elders need deacons to better oversee and to be devoted to a ministry of word and prayer, as we just read. Deacons need elders to better manage and administrate and care for the practical needs of the church. The church needs both types 
of servant leaders to flourish. One brother in the church emailed me this week, and he was, as he was reading through the text, he remembered that he at one point was serving in a capacity in this church with youth, and he, would, he and his wife would remind the, those serving under their care of this. When you're changing diapers and cleaning up spills in the nursery, you're facilitating the proclamation of God's word. So good. Isn't that a good reminder to us? So good. Well, what is the response to the solution put forward by the apostles? Well, let's look at verse 5. And it pleased the whole gathering. And seven men were selected. Here we see gracious resolve to the complaint of verse 1. This, brothers and sisters, is a portrait of what it looks like for the church to take responsibility for the church and to delight in it. Do you think of the church this way? Do you see yourself in part responsible for the needs of the church, practically and sometimes spiritually? Do you see yourself as being more a part of the complaint of verse 1 or the solution that comes later? Notice that there wasn't a complaint and then division and factions and gossip and disunity. No, a church complaint gave way to a church solution, and the church was pleased to be a part of it. They were delighted to be a part of a solution that was twofold. First, the widows were taken care of, and two, the apostles were freed up to preach the word more faithfully because of these men who were set apart for diaconal work. And this is all for the good of the church to the glory of God. Well, again, what is a deacon? A deacon is a model servant that is spirit-filled, serves the church, is selected by the church, as we just saw. And finally, verse 3, or point 3, is set apart for the unity of the church. Look with me at verses 6 through 7. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In 1923, one of the most prolific and profitable companies of all time was birthed, and it was this little company called the Walt Disney Company. And as it gained traction, many would ask, well, how, how is this guy creating such a well-oiled, fine-tuned machine? What's going on here? What's, what's the success here? How, how is he doing this? Well, I believe that this quote from Walt really kind of sums it up. Here it is. Whatever we accomplish belongs to our entire group, a tribute to our combined effort. Walt Disney built a fruitful company upon participation and togetherness. Okay, so I'm not saying that there's a direct one-to-one correlation between Disney and the church, okay? Don't, don't, hear me, don't hear me wrong. 
But what I am saying is this. It takes a committed and participating team to accomplish the work of the team. That's what we see in our text. In verse 6, they, the congregation, continue to participate in the life of the church. They set these seven men before the apostles, and the apostles pray and lay hands on them. Which is to say that these deacons at this point, these model servants, were set apart for practical work in the church, practical service in the church. Notice the pattern. Church recognizes, elders appoint, and the church flourishes as the word spreads in verse 7. Our passage ends with the word of God increased and the church grew. This part of verse 7 is the second half of what's called an inclusio, a little bit of a nerdy word, but it really just means the second half of the bracket that ties it back to chapter 6, verse 1. Beloved, the church grows and increases as the preached word increases. The word is sufficient for all of this. I love the way Luther talked about this. I'm sure you've heard this quote from this pulpit, but here it goes. Here we go again. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. The word is sufficient for faith and practice, church. The word is the soil that this ministry of both word and table grows out of. And this is where Luke concludes in our passage. A faithful ministry of the word is made possible by a faithful ministry of practical service in the church. Practical ministry and word ministry, model servanthood and pastoral care go hand in hand. They need one another. And so, church, we should be talking more about this as a church. And you'll have an opportunity to. Uh, at our members meeting next week, please bring, bring questions about deacons. Maybe even think of some people that we could potentially recognize as deacons in the life of this church. Come ready to discuss and recognize and further the ministry of the word and service here at this church. Let's do this work together. Together. Well, the end result of the deacons being called and installed and the word of God increasing is that many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. The priests were becoming Christians. Now, why would Luke end this passage with this particular note? Great question. Great question. Because he wants us to see that when the church recognizes its needs to care for the needy ones of the congregation. And when the church recognizes model servants to meet those needs, and when those deacons are appointed and set apart for that ministry in the church, he wants us to see that this kind of care is both awesome and it leads to unity. It unifies the church. 
I don't want us to miss this. Pastors are set apart and held responsible to pastor. Deacons are set apart and held responsible to deacon. But pursuing and protecting unity is ultimately the church's responsibility. And when this kind of unity is present, it's like a tractor beam of grace. That's what we see in the word this morning. The church is so unified in its care and word ministry that it's infectious. So infectious that even the priests are turning to Christ. The most devout Jews are becoming Christians. See, the whole passage, this whole passage is a portrait of unity in the church from complaint to solution to faithful resolution. The church is built up and unified. And where service in the church increases, the ministry of the word increases, and its testimony to a watching world increases. When the church works through conflict and resolution, In this way, she displays a wonderful picture of Psalm 133. Oh, how good it is. Oh, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. When the church acts like it does in Acts 6, we become a beautiful, compelling community. And deacons are at the center of that compelling community alongside the elders, alongside the whole church. And they're doing the work of problem spotting, problem solving, church loving, unity propelling, Christ exalting work. That's what they're doing. One pastor put it this way, deacons serve to care for the physical and financial needs of the church and they do so in a way that heals divisions brings unity under the word and supports the leadership of the elders. Without this practical service of the deacons, the elders will not be free to devote themselves to praying and serving the word to people. Elders need deacons to serve practically and deacons need elders to lead spiritually. Brothers and sisters, it takes the whole church to unify the whole church. It takes faithful deacons, faithful pastors, and a faithful church, faithful church members to to make a complete, faithful portrait of sacrificial love and unity in Christ. Well, we should, we should conclude. What leads a man like John Harper to forsake his own rescue in order to serve those around him? What leads a church to prefer and serve one another? What leads the church to select and to set apart men and women for this office of service in the church? Ultimately, the answer is Christ alone, the chief servant. For he came, again, he came not to be served, but to serve and lay his life down for his church. May we be a church that is known for laying its lives down in service of one another. 
May we be a church that is so giving and hospitable towards one another that it's infectious. May we be a church where faithful deacons are both recognized and set apart and appointed so that the ministry of word and prayer and practical care in this church and region can flourish. May we be a church that is resolved ultimately to protect the unity of this church. Beloved, this is what we see in Acts 6. It takes the whole church to do the work of the whole church. How are you committing and serving in that work? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you have so wonderfully lavished upon your people through the sacrificial and servant work of Christ Jesus. We thank you for him. Lord, we ask that your spirit would make us a unified church, that we would call and recognize and appoint more deacons in the life of this church. And Lord, we ask that you would do this for our good and for ultimately your glory. And it's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen.